Grace and peace be yours from God the Father and our Lord Christ. Our text this morning is the Gospel reading, which begins this way. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Friends in our Lord Jesus, there's wisdom in that request. Lord, teach us to pray. Perhaps far more wisdom than that disciple, unnamed disciple, ever would know. He may not even have been trying to be wise and asking Christ for instruction in prayer because you see it was customary at the time for rabbis to teach their particular pupils, their disciples, those who followed them, a particular pattern or a particular way or particular things for which to pray. That's why the disciple, it's likely why he said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. There's still a world of wisdom in that request, that we would ask the Son of God to teach us the things for which we are to pray. Now, at first thought, you might wonder to yourself, do we really need to be taught to pray? After all, it likely is, or perhaps it is for you, a daily and an ordinary custom, morning, noon, and night. But consider... More often than not, isn't it the case that the immediate needs of the day, the things that are most on our minds at that particular time and moment, those things that weigh most heavily upon us there, they're the things for which we pray. Are they not? And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But for what things would God have us pray? What things does he consider so highly needful for us that he would place them on our lips And fix them in our minds by saying, when you pray, say, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Not because he once prayed it himself. There's no record of Christ ever praying this prayer for himself. But we call it the Lord's Prayer because our Lord composed it for us. And he not only composed it for us, but he even suffers that prayer To be so misused and abused by us throughout life and thoughtless and often rote repetition of it. And yet he suffers it so that by it he might ever teach us to pray. And what does he teach you? With the very first word that he places on your lips. Father. Or in Matthew's version, our Father. The prayer begins with the clear and full ring of gospel tone. Because consider of all of the titles that could be attributed to God, Almighty God, Creator, Highest and Most Holy God, God of infinite justice and love, all true, all good titles for God, of all of these, Christ chooses for us a title of intimate familiarity, of family. And simply giving us the word Father. From word one, we're compelled as we pray to remember that it's only by the kind favor of God that you and I can address him in a word that belongs exclusively to sons or daughters. 
good for us to remember that. Paul reminded us of that last week in the epistle reading. That we're not sons and daughters by birth. Natural birth anyway. Remember what he said last week? We're, we're by nature alienated, he said, from God. Hostile to him by our natural born condition. This week in the, the, the epistle reading, how does Paul put it? That once we were dead in trespasses and sins, not living sons and daughters of a living God. Now for you, that having been in that condition, it may have been so long ago, dead in trespasses that you can, can barely even or not even remember it. Because it was back in your infancy that buried with Christ in baptism, God there made you alive together with Christ, first forgiving you of all of your sin. Though maybe that was not so long ago for you. So that you remember that day well when you were translated, transferred, as he said in the epistle reading of last week, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Maybe though... You're still there in that natural born condition, having never been baptized into Christ. Or perhaps since the time that baptismal faith was born within you, maybe for whatever your reasons, you've cast away your inheritance. And you've thrown away your sonship. And you've returned to that faraway land of prodigal sons. By persisting in things that the Father considers so wrong. Perhaps you've disowned him. Christ would have us all repent. And he'd have us all take upon our lips in prayer the name that he's given us. To use in calling upon his Father, the name Father. For you see that record of debt that stood against a world of prodigal sons. Debt that separated us from father. There's no debt between fathers and sons. That that record of debt that stood against a world of prodigals. And you know what your record has said. It has been, as Paul put it in the epistle reading, canceled. The father set it aside, having nailed it to the cross of his only begotten. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul puts it this way. So well, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption, he writes, as sons. And because he says you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you realize here? That by bidding us, not just suggesting that we do, but by bidding us call upon God as Father, that Jesus is affirming your sonship. Not only is he affirming it, but he's making you with your own lips affirm that sonship. No matter how long and how far the prodigal road had been. And so as Martin Luther would explain it with this first word, Father, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and we are his true children. So that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children would bound up upon the lap of their papa and ask their dear father. Father, we pray, hallowed be thy name. Now of all the things, right? 
Of all the things that he could have placed first, Christ places this on our lips and in our minds above all other things that his name, that God's name be kept holy. You and I don't accomplish that. In fact, his name, like a a precious gemstone, it's precious and priceless of itself, no matter if it's kept up high upon a shelf for all to be seen, whether it's worn with pride and dignity as is befitting it, or whether it's kicked around in the dirt and trampled underfoot. A diamond is still a diamond. His name is his name. Holy. But you see, we don't always keep it holy in our use, do we? And so we're here taught to pray that his name be kept holy, that it be kept set apart, sacred. Among us, as we use it in our lives, in our homes, in our church, how is that done? Well, it's simple. God does it. He keeps his own name holy and set apart in our midst when... Every time a pastor steps into the pulpit and preaches that which is true, rightly applying it to you, rightly dividing the law and the gospel, God keeps his name holy whenever that pastor proclaims that our sins, though they be many, are forgiven because of Christ's atoning work. God's name is kept holy when we'd call upon it. In our day and hour of trouble. Not kick it around in the dirt of profanity. His name's kept holy among us when, when we by his grace, as Paul put it today in the epistle reading, when we continue to walk in Christ as we've received him. His name's kept holy as we live, as we're enabled to live in ways befitting of sons and daughters of God. It's kept holy when even though we do fail to live as we should It's it's kept holy when God's grace picks us up, dusts us off, declares us to be forgiven, assures us that we are forgiven sons and and daughters of God, enables us to amend our ways, and compels us not to, to look behind us, but to turn our focus ahead and press on to what lies ahead. God's name's kept holy when we're kept rooted in and built up in the, in the apostolic, the true faith. By instruction in his word here. As it's preached to you in our Bible classes that are offered on Sunday and throughout the week. His name's kept holy when, when God moves parents to teach their toddling children. To form the name of Jesus on their lips. His name's kept holy when the Lord's precious prayer is taught to small sons and daughters in the glow of a nightlight, in the bedtime hours, that they might learn it and use that prayer. God's name's kept holy among us when the compassion and the loving direction of of the Heavenly Father is taught by the actions and loving direction of an earthly father to his teenage son over the smashed front fender of the borrowed family car, of ourselves. By ourselves, his name would not be kept holy, but be brought shame. But for our good, we pray that God keep his name holy among us, and he does, doesn't he?
And hand in hand with that foremost request, our Lord teaches us to pray, and Lord, thy kingdom come. Thanks be to God that he sends it far more faithfully and frequently than we ever ask him to send it. But you know, the kingdom for which we pray is probably not the one that we so often look for. As we await that visible end time coming of Christ's kingdom of glory, we pray here that regularly that he'd send the kingdom of his quiet grace, that it would continue to come riding lowly as it does, riding silently and lowly unto his Jerusalem upon his humble means of grace. That kingdom. We pray that these means of grace in this petition, that they'd continue to exist purely among us, that his means of grace would be used by us diligently so that we might be enabled to continue to believe in him. Jesus, you see, said the kingdom of God comes not with observation in a showy and flashy way, but he said, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And that kingdom comes silently within you, among us, through this word as it's heard. As you consider it, as you take it home and mull it over. That kingdom comes when baptismal water cascades over the head of an infant. And even though all you hear is water falling into water, and the sound of a pastor's voice, still at that moment faith is born in that little one. And heaven's gates are flung open wide. And all the angels and saints and martyrs above rejoice. As silently the kingdom grows by one. The kingdom comes. And the people of the kingdom quietly are built up. When when we the citizens of heaven. Under the cover of rugged earthly infirmity hobble up to this altar as we do, this Lord's table dragging our broken bodies and our broken lives. And there we're heartened again for the road ahead. As here we come face to flesh and blood with our King, our Lord. I think it's fair to say that this often isn't our highest priority, is it? As we kneel or bow our head in prayer, but thank God that he's placed it there upon our lips. Seek first, he says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness that comes through these things and all needful things he promises will be added unto you, including your daily bread. So Luke records next, give us each day our daily bread. Be assured of it. Having reconciled the whole world to himself in Christ, God's going to give daily bread. What does he say in Matthew? He says he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the, on the fields of the just and the unjust. But we so often don't receive what he sends with a grateful heart, do we? But yet with grumbling, we, we reach out and, and take what he gives. Sometimes we think it too little for us. Other times we think it all too much for us, Lord. Do we forget, though, who gives it? He's our Father. 
And as he said, if earthly fathers, if you or mothers know how to give good things to your sons and daughters, how much more will our Father in heaven give to us in good measure? And just like the wisdom of a father that doesn't necessarily entrust everything that he has to give to his son or daughter at one time and leave it up to him or her to handle it all the rest of his days, so too Christ preaches us to teaches us to, to pray not for, for annual bread or even weekly bread, but what does he say? Daily bread. For what better words could he place on our lips in order that thereby he would teach us to rely on him day to day? Just like his Old Testament pilgrims, right? Who couldn't store up manna for the next day, could they? It would rot and waste away. They had to trust that he was going to send them bread every day. And he did. Until the day they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And so, thank God for the food on your plate today. And the shirt on your back today. For the good weather and the good crop that yields daily bread. The good government that protects the honest sale of it. For the good neighbors that allow you to eat it in peace. For the health of body it provides you. And if your Father's hand to you seems to afford you too little... If it ever seems to be more closed to you than open, then consider those ravens. They neither sow nor reap any harvest, do they? They have neither storehouse nor barn, nor pension plan or 401k. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you who are unable to call him Father? than they. And maybe it's because we neither hallow his name, first of all in our minds, or ask for the coming of his kingdom, or perhaps it's because that we so often begrudgingly receive that daily bread, whichever the reason. Maybe one of those two, probably one of those two, is the reason why our Lord places on our lips next these words, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us. Here Christ would emboss the cross on our praying lips and in our praying mind. Luther, you might remember in his small catechism, explains this so well when he says, we pray here that our Father in heaven wouldn't look on our sins nor deny our prayer because of them. We're neither worthy of these things for which we pray nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he'd give them all to us by grace, for he says we daily sin much, and we do. That's true. But this is also true. That St. John writes that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that we can be assured that our sin is forgiven, that he hears our prayer. And then John goes on to say this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Doesn't that bring to your mind the story that Jesus told of that man who was called to account by his master for 10,000 talents? Now, I don't know if you know conversion rates of antiquity, but a talent 
was the equivalent of 15 years' wages. And if you do the math, he was in debt 150,000 years worth of wages. It's a debt impossible to pay. But as Jesus tells it, the master, full of compassion, full of compassion, he canceled that man's debt. Now going out from there, debt-free, that man comes across a friend of his who owed him just 30 days wages, a pittance in comparison. And though this man had seen before his own eyes the record of debt that stood against him canceled, absolved, let's call it, he held his fellow servant to account Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us. If God so loved us, we also, would we not also so love one another? Friends, Christ bids you call on him as Father. He hallows his name among us even when we don't ask him to. He sends his kingdom through his means of grace. His hand is open. To ensure us, even of the daily things, he forgives you all of your sins, cancels the enormity of your debt, and then leads us to bear the same disposition toward others. How the devil would love for you to doubt it, or even doubt it in part. And so that's why our Lord concludes this version of the prayer that as he gives it in Luke by placing lastly on our lips an appeal to our first and last line of defense. Father, lead us not into temptation. You'll be tempted to doubt it all. You'll be tempted to doubt that you should call him by the name Father or that you deserve that his kingdom would come among you. You'll be tempted to doubt, but not by God. Scripture says God tempts no one. Friends, if anyone can preserve you and protect you from what Luther would here call false belief or despair, or other shame and vice, then it's the one that we're to call Father. It's His Son. It's their spirit. And when the tempter would draw his bow back, or reach into his bag to, to fill his sling with an accusation that he'd hurl against you, then remind him what you heard today, that it's written that Christ has disarmed him. He's disarmed all principalities and powers, triumphing over them on his cross. There's no charge left to sling, no accusation left to hurl. Friends, It's perhaps the first prayer learned by the lips of children. It's no doubt among the last of prayers prayed by the lips of aged and dying saints. All life long, Lord, teach us this prayer to pray. In his name, amen.